Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatran Jai Maul. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Mircha Rayanu about his new book, Tata, the Global Corporation that Built Indian Capitalism, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2021. Professor Ryanu is an assistant professor of history at the University of Maryland. So welcome to the podcast, Mircha. Our first question is always biographical. So I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a historian of modern South Asia? Thank you, Shatranjai. It's uh, very nice to be with you uh, here talking about the book. I grew up in uh, Romania, in Bucharest. I was born in 1987 at the tail end of the communist period, and I grew up during the transition in the 1990s from communism to a sort of market economy. It was, of course, the time of uh, massive economic reforms and privatizations and also the uh, creation of a democratic uh, political regime. And so for me as a, as a child, as a young uh, person growing up, I, I saw these incredible transitions going on around me. And uh, this was really the first um, time that I became interested in the processes that I now explore professionally as a historian. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So I'd now like to turn to talking about your new book. Um, So for those in our audience who are not familiar with the Tatas, could you tell us a little bit about them and their business empire? Um, And also related to that, how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its main arguments and contributions? Sure. So to continue really where I left off on the last answer, uh, when I moved to the United States, my family... uh, um, my parents and I moved here in the year 2000 and um, went through the American education system, secondary uh, high school and then university. And it was at the University of California, Berkeley, where I was an undergraduate that I began to take an interest in South Asia. Um, I had some great teachers and mentors there that kind of got me interested and inspired to go down this path of South Asian and British imperial history. And then when I got to Harvard and my PhD program, it became a question, as I'm sure it is for uh, any PhD student that may be listening to this podcast, uh, there's that anxiety-inducing moment where uh, people want to know what you're going to write about, and you have to do your prospectus, and you have to present a research project. And so I was pulled in very many different directions, and I often say this, that I was not, I did not come into graduate school as a historian, uh, as an economic historian or historian of business or historian of capitalism. But those experiences that had drawn me uh, to the study of these topics, the experiences that I mentioned earlier, really, I put two and two together when I started to look at India, the post-liberalization period, and the predominance and the power of these new uh, corporate organizations. We're talking about the Birlas, the Reliance, the Ambanis, the Adanis, and of course the Tatas. But the Tatas were of special interest to me because they had been around for so long. So in addition to the remarkable diversity of their corporate interests, everything we often say in India, it's a salt to software and tea to IT group. It really is in every sector of the economy. Uh, And it is one of the top business groups currently in India. So that was one aspect that fascinated me about the Tatas. But of course, you could say that about any of these uh, elite 
business conglomerates uh, that we see today in India and in other emerging markets in Asia and Africa and Latin America. But the second piece of the puzzle for me was the longevity of Tata and the way that they had been around since the mid-19th century and went through the transition to uh, from the world of the British Empire and Indian Ocean trade to the uh, nationalist period, the emergence of the territorial uh, national economy of India, then into the period of Nehruvianism and the mixed economy uh, and the so-called socialist pattern, and then into liberalization and uh, and the present. So the fact that the Tatas had been around for so long and had done so much, uh, we all know those of us who study India all know the big first, you know, the first steel plant, the first hydroelectric uh, dam system, uh, first aviation, first major airline that became Air India. So all of these big advances in Indian uh, economic history uh, then superimposed onto this, what I call in the book, their resilience, a particular uh, resilience and longevity uh, that really got me interested uh, in writing a book about spe- focusing specifically about the history of the Tatas. And I realized that there was no such book uh, in terms of an academic monograph. So that would be the 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 gap in the in the brick wall of scholarship, as it were, that I was going to fill. And then really the the Final, final source of inspiration, which we can talk about more if you'd like, was the Tata archives, uh, which are located. There's two sets of archives, one of them in Pune in Maharashtra and one of them in Jamshedpur in Jharkhand. That's the location of their steel uh, plant. And these archives had not been really properly explored by historians before. So you, so you have the topic and you have uh, the questions that I was interested in, and then you have the sources that will allow me to answer it. And then uh, that was the origin of the thesis that became the book. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I think you, in this book, uh, you captured the, the, this, the history of the longevity of the Tatas really well. And I really enjoyed um, reading that. Um, and um, uh, actually, you already um, started answering uh, what was going to be my next question about the research process. Um, so could you tell us a little more about that? What was it like to research for this book? You mentioned some of the places where you did your research. Um, so what sources did you re- use and how did you go about your research? Yeah, so the I really began with the Tata archives. Um, now, the one in Pune is the Tata Central Archives is a very interesting institution because it's really the first dedicated business archive in India. Um, and many other groups such as Godridge have begun to set up these kinds of archives and Bajaj, I, I believe, is doing the same now. Um, but Tata was the first and this happened in the early uh, 2000s. And it's a very interesting uh, uh, institution, as I said, because it's uh, affiliated or associated, it's on the campus of the Tata Management Training Center. And so it is part of the way that the group reproduces its own identity in training new generations of managers. Uh, it's also a public-facing institution. So you have you know, school children can go visit. Uh, you have people can just go visit the exhibits that are there uh, on site. And I believe you've You've been there and seen some of those uh, exhibits as well. So uh, it was not just for me a great place to do research as a historian, but also a place to really reflect on the Tata's uh, identity and the Tata's legitimation as uh, this uh, business group that has a kind of national and global standing. So uh, that's really, I I failed to mention, to answer your question about the argument of the book, but the main argument of the book really is that that Tata has managed to survive and be so successful over time, in part because of its relationship to the state, whether it's the colonial state or the post-independence Indian state. And what I basically argue is that there's an assumption of what I call sovereign functions. So Tata Mm -hmm. does certain things that the state should or could or won't uh, or, or won't do uh, 
including in the realm of economic development, as well as in philanthropy, as well as in the governance of populations uh, in places like the company town uh, in Jamshedpur. So that duality uh, of Tata as a profit-making, uh, you know, corporation as well as a, so- a quasi-sovereign state power mm-hmm. that runs through the entire book, and I think you can actually see this and feel it experientially as a historian when you visit the archive, uh, and when you think about the fact that most South Asianists really work, uh, really start out working in a very limited set of archives, whether it's the National Archives in Delhi or the Tirmurti in Delhi. And then, of course, they move on to various regional and local archives, depending on the nature of their project. But we haven't had a lot of works that are based primarily on the business or corporate archive. And the first time you walk into these, um, the one in Jamshedpur is even more kind of interesting and imposing uh, in the book, I have a photo of these extraordinary, uh, you know, columns and pyramids that greet you as you as you enter into the archive. There's art on the walls. There's, you know, um, the standards of preservation. Also, I should I should add, uh, are very impressive and and modern and up to date. So uh, you are greeted with this uh, with this image of the company's history. As, as I write in the book, the company's history is a public currency, and it's a public currency and a tool of legitimation. And that's something that is very unusual. It's quite typical. Those of you who are perhaps, you know, study North America or Western Europe won't be surprised when I'm, what I'm, by what I'm describing here. But I think in, in the South Asian and an emerging market context, to have this kind of uh, symbolic power projected by a corporate group is very unusual um, and something that I was interested in exploring throughout the book and throughout the research process. Thank you. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I had an opportunity to visit the Tata Central Archives, um, and um, as, and it sort of reminded me of what you wrote in this book about how this is a this is a business group that's very conscious of its history, and um, you know, it's sort of trying to present uh, a, a version of history. Um, and so, I'm, and also, I'm very happy um, that you sort of tapped into this archive that n- other historians had not uh, used thus far. Um, so, um, yeah, so you sort of broadened the archive. Um, for um, you know, for South Asian historians, um, through this book uh, and through your research um, for this book. Um, so now I'd like to um, talk about um, the history of the Tata Group, and I'd like to begin, you know, at the beginning. Um, so could you tell us about the origins of the Tata Group um, and their early history in the nineteenth century? when they transitioned from trading to being involved in manufacturing. Um, and could you tell us what factors facilitated their early growth? Yes. So the Tatas are, f- first thing to say about them is that they are a Parsi family, Parsi Zoroastrian family. So this is a small uh, trading, but very powerful and wealthy trading community in on the coast of Western India. And most of the merchants that come out of this community are based in the colonial port city of Bombay. And we're now in the early 19th century, the 1830s, 40s, 50s, uh, into the middle of the century. And this is a time when under the British Empire, you have the emergence of long distance trade across the Indian Ocean, both with East Asia and with the East Coast of Africa and the Middle East. Uh, And Parsi merchants are entering into partnerships with British managing agencies. So one of the famous ones is Jamshedji Gigi Boy and his relationship with the um, trading house of Jardine Matheson that deals mostly with Hong Kong, with, uh, with China. So it is this type of, the Parsis are not the only merchants that are involved in this long distance trade, but they are a community that is particularly predominant. Uh, in this trade. So the Tatas start out as one of many Parsi merchant families in this period. And uh, some of the commodities that they're involved in trading are cotton and opium. Uh, Both of these commodities are experiencing a significant boom uh, in this period. In particular, cotton becomes very profitable as a result of the American Civil War, where the South uh, is blockaded and they can't send cotton to the uh, factories, textile mills of Manchester. So um, 
they turn the uh, industrialist turn, British industrialist turn to India as a new source of cotton. Now, uh, opium, of course, is is on the in the other direction, in the other geographic direction, a very important commodity, and that, uh, of course, a controversial one because many uh, many people today look at the origins of groups like the Tatas and they say that they are, you know, tainted by opium. That this, you know, proves that this belies their later nationalist claim making, because they were involved. They were colonial collaborators involved in the opium trade to subjugate China and, and so on, and so forth. And of course, there is. It is undeniable that the Tatas were involved in this trade. But what I uh, have found in the course of my research, and here one must keep in mind the limitations of those company archives that I described. There isn't a lot of information available. I don't believe it's been destroyed or can or well has been destroyed. I don't believe it's been concealed or you know in any way manipulated in the present. But there simply isn't a lot uh, when these archives when the materials were collected in you know, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, there simply wasn't uh, a lot that survived from this early period. So uh, there isn't very much that is extant about the opium trade. But from what I've been able to find, uh, opium really was not that important as a source of revenue and profit in these early days, or at least no more important than cotton or silk and some of these other uh, commodities. What was extremely important to the origins and the survival of the group, and that's something that I haven't seen discussed very often and something that I write about in the book, is essentially what I call the 19th century military industrial complex. And that is to say that every time there was a downturn in some of this commodity trading, and that's one of the risks and vulnerabilities of long distance uh, mercantile activity is that, you know, prices could go down, there could be some type of uh, uh, supplier demand shock, and then you're really uh, in trouble because of the high cost of these, uh, these long distance uh, voyages, uh, and the ships as capital and so on and so forth. Anyway, this is basically what happens to the Tatas twice uh, in the early days. Uh, and uh, in the first instance, it is a military commission for British expeditionary forces to Persia in the 1850s that allows the Tata fortune to first be built up. Uh, the founder was called Jamshechi Tata and his father was called Nusarwanji. And Nusarwanji is the person who executes this commission and, and becomes wealthy as a result of it. But then the Tatas lose a lot of money in the downturn that results in the fall of cotton prices uh, after the south comes back online so to speak uh, at the end of the towards the end of the u.s civil war and then in 1868 it's another military commission this time to abyssinia modern day ethiopia that restores the tata's fortunes uh, and there's all sorts of um uh, interesting uh uh, politics to these military commissions in terms of who in the Bombay mercantile community can benefit from them and who has connections to know what the military expeditions will need. Uh, and uh, we don't know exactly how Nusarwanji and other merchants get these commissions. But essentially, the way I write the story, and this is really the, the first major entanglement or association with the state uh, that, that that Tata has, even before providing steel to build the colonial railways, that's later on, and some, some other episodes that are very, very well known around World War One and World War II. This is really, the origins of the group are inextricably connected to this relationship with the state and what I call the 19th century military industrial complex. And so that's a story that is not as well known. I think it's more important than the opium story, and I wanted to tell it in the book. Thank you. Um, that's 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 a really fascinating history of, of the, the history of, of the Parsi Zoroastrian community in and of itself is really interesting because it's a very unique community. Um, but beyond that, um, also the, the origins of the Tata group um, are also um, very fascinating. So, so thank you for sharing that. 
Um, so um, something else you also talk about um, in this book is, of course, um, the city of Jamshedpur that the uh, Tatas create. Um, so they created an entire city in the interiors of colonial India as part of their uh, greater involvement in resource extraction and iron and steel manufacturing. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about this? Um, and what does Jamshedpur tell us um, about their production and management style? Um, I think the uh, Bengali sociology Binoy Kumar Sarkar called it Tataism. So could you share, tell us a little bit about um, you know, Jamshedpur and their, uh, the Tata's involvement in iron and steel manufacturing? Sure. So this is part of a spatial shift from what I was describing in my previous answer, the world of long distance trade across the Indian Ocean and the Tata's for a very long time, continued to have these very strong connections with uh, places like Shanghai, Hong Kong, connections with Japan also, Yokohama and Kobe. So there is a distinct shift by the time we get to the 20th century. We start to see the main holding company, the, the, this is the managing agency system, back in the colonial period. So you have essentially uh, a main partnership or holding company that is promoting various uh, ventures in, in various sectors. So the main holding company is called Tata Sons. It's established in 1887 as a partnership between the founder, Jamshechi, his two sons, and the cousin, R.D. Tata. Uh, and the cousin is the one that's involved in many of the long-distance trading ventures. But Around the early 20th century, there is a distinct shift in terms of promoting investment in industry. So we have the textile mills that happens throughout the 1880s and 90s. And Jamshedji, who dies in 1904, his great dream, his great ambition is to create India's first iron and steel plant. And he's directly inspired by the Industrial Revolution in Britain and wants to replicate this uh, in India. So not just with textiles, but with more heavy industrial manufacturing. And for this, there's a long process whereby, which I described in the book, where they try to find the best place to do this that can be close to the natural resources that you need for a steel plant, most notably coal and iron ore. And that place ends up being uh, a few hundred kilometers west of Calcutta. So what is now the state of Jharkhand, um, Chotanagpur uh, region. And that's where they decide to build the a self-contained city of Jamshedpur, which ends up being called Jamshedpur after Jamshedjitata, uh, around the site of this steel plant. So what is interesting to me is, um, again, company towns are not an unusual phenomenon in this period around the world. I think one thing that makes Jamshedpur distinct, again, is its sheer longevity. It's still a very large uh, and important city and center of economic production in this region. Uh, today, a city of over 1 million inhabitants with a steel plant still at its core, still functioning. And that's something that we really don't see very often around the world. But it is still, even more importantly, still run by the Tatas as more or less a company town. It does not have municipal self-government. It does not have, um, you know, it is not in entirely integrated in the surrounding political unit, which today is Jharkhand State. Before that, it used to be the state of Bihar. And before that, it used to be, uh, of course, under colonialism. And it had also was surrounded by various princely states and zamindaris. These are feudal uh, landholders uh, surrounding this area. And so what I argue about Jamshedpur is that it, of course, it was located in a region that was good for natural resources, but it was also located in a region at the boundaries of different layers of sovereignty in South Asia. And that allowed the Tatas to create and sustain this town in a way that uh, perhaps they wouldn't have if it was, uh, if they had built their steel plant, I don't know, on the outskirts of, of Calcutta or or even, or, or Bombay or some other place that was already uh, firmly under colonial rule or was, or was already a center of uh, economic activity. Uh, and so the political and social dynamics of creating a city in this region 
Um, there's also surrounding population of uh, Adivasis or tribals, which are uh, providing much of the labor uh, for this plant, but also uh, migrants from all across India that are coming to this region where they're not from. So it has a set of unique dynamics having to do with the location, having to do with the people that I think make Jamshedpur a fascinating place from which to write India's industrial history. Thank you. That's that's very intriguing. Um, the, the longevity of uh, the Tata um, presence or the t- Tata control in the city of Jamshedpur, and the fact that through all these uh, decades, through all the shifting political uh, winds, um, the Tatas have been able to maintain, um, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, control over the the city of Jamshedpur. Um, so, so that that's uh, that's really um, interesting. And um, I actually just recently read a quote from Jamshedji Tata, where he said, where he sort of says that, you know, like. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it basically says something along the lines of that, you know, um, we we sort of wanted to provide like civic amenities for our workers um, and so on. So like, um, yeah, that's, that's really um, interesting. That's a very interesting history. Um, so the Tatas are also very notable for their philanthropy. This is something you um, come back to in the book uh, at various points. Um, and I, I think, it, if I'm remembering correctly, the third chapter. Um, and um, recently, um, Jamshedji Tata was rated as the world's most generous philanthropist of the last century, outstripping well-known uh, contemporary figures in the United States like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's. Um, so you trace out in meticulous detail um, the origins and history of Tata philanthropy and note both its challenges and successes. Um, so having read this chapter, it became apparent to me that Tata philanthropy confounds existing frames for thinking about um, philanthropic giving. So for those in our audience who are not familiar uh, with the wide scope of Tata philanthropy, could you tell us about it and what you discovered um, about their philanthropic work? Sure. Um, it's always uh, interesting to read about fr- the framing such as the one that you mentioned of comparing Tata with other famous philanthropists. And in a sense, as a historian, uh, one must question, you know, how we're making these comparisons and what what standards we're using to say who's the greatest philanthropist across very different contexts. You know, uh, the the age of the first major philanthropists in the U.S., the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and the Fords is very, very different from uh, the philanthropic landscape in which a Bill Gates operates, um, for example. So we should also understand Tata's philanthropy, Jamshechi's philanthropy in the context of of his time. And one of the most important contributions that he made was to specifically direct his philanthropic giving towards what he perceived as nation-building objectives. So to me, this is really the defining feature of Tata philanthropy and its institution-building. Right. So it is in a way it is, as I write in the book, it's it's a parallel to his approach uh, in the economic realm where the approach was to try and do something big, to try and build a step, trying to do something big that is a step change from what is going on. So if you own three textile mills, don't build a fourth or a fifth and try to make them more profitable, for example, but you build the next big thing the steel plant, the hydroelectric dam system, which I didn't talk about, but is very, very important. Um, It's the first such system that provides electric power to to Bombay uh, uh, in the early 20th century. So anyway, it is uh, that same philosophy uh, we see in the philanthropic realm. So we have institution building for the entire anticipated Indian nation that doesn't exist yet, but is in the process of being imagined and constructed during the nationalist movement. So Jamshechi enters this picture, seeding India, as it were, with what he thinks a nation, a modern nation needs. And that can be a steel plant in the economic realm. Uh, It can be the Indian Institute of Science, the first uh, higher education institution in India devoted exclusively to science and technology that's uh, established through Tata philanthropy. And there's a long conflict with the colonial state about uh, this university and how it's going to function, who's going to run it. And I described this in that chapter. And then there's a string of other ones. There's the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, 
the uh, this is in the realm of physics and mathematics. There is um, a school of tropical medicine, which never quite gets off the ground, and there's more conflicts with the colonial state uh, there. Uh, there is uh, the first cancer hospital, the Tata Memorial Hospital in, in Bombay, and so on and so forth. And so this is one of the crucial aspects. And this is, um, this is also uh, in contradistinction to what many other Parsi philanthropists are doing, uh, and that is prime and many other philanthropists uh, in in India, which is primarily serving their communities and their local uh, cities or regions. Uh, that could be through building, through funding religious institutions such as temples. It could be by p- to provide uh, things like low-cost housing for community members. And Tata explicitly, not to say rejects, but uh, chooses a different path uh, from this. And that uh, is a struggle between their uh, shall we say, devotion to the nation or devotion to the community that uh, is not often appreciated and that runs through that chapter uh, of, of the book. The second aspect, which I'll touch on very quickly, is the fact that the Tata Trusts, which are established uh, after Jamshedji's two sons die uh, without natural heirs, so they leave their wealth uh, in these uh, philanthropic trusts, uh, these trusts uh, own a majority share in the holding company Tata Sons, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, and this type of arrangement, it used to be 80%, now it's 66%. So this is another reason, and this again is something that continues into the present when many other foundations, for example, in the United States, the Ford Foundation is no longer legally allowed to own uh, the main uh, shares of the Ford Motor Company. So uh, this this has been outlawed in the U.S. It is um, still quite common in many other uh, countries, especially European countries. But uh, in the Indian context, it's, again, something that has been going on for a very long time. And that's something that a lot of people look to uh, when they look at the Tata Group as a whole. They see that it is it continues to be uh, organized around these philanthropic trusts that are really at the heart of the group. Um, and so that's another legacy of the early 20th century model of philanthropy that is still with us. Thank you. Um, something that's sort of always interested me about the Tatas is how they sort of maintain um, their popularity um, in the Indian context um, in, in a way, because I, it seems that I always hear people sort of comparing Tata favorably to other business houses. So I wonder if, you know, this legacy of philanthropy with, um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, the, 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 their aligning of philanthropy with nation building, if that sort of contributed to this image of the Tatas um, and also um, this uh, trust, uh, this system of, you know, the trusts holding um, shares in the company. Like, I, I wonder if those sort of contributed um, to that, um, so, so thank you for that. Um, so you next turn your attention to how the Tatas navigated um, the shifting political winds during World War II um, and the early years following Indian independence. Um, so what sort of relationship did the Tatas have with the colonial state um, and with the uh, burgeoning nationalist anti-colonial movement in India before and during World War II? Um, and how did Indian independence and the establishment of the post-colonial state impact the Tatas? So again, here we have to, the historian has to deal with a lot of received wisdom that isn't necessarily uh, accurate uh, or really respectful of the complexities that are going on in this period of the rise of the nationalist movement. And one of that bit of received wisdom is that we can very neatly divide the Indian business community between those um, uh Houses and organizations, for example, uh, the Birlas and FIKI, the uh, Federation of uh, Indi- Industries and Chambers of Commerce, so uh, uh, Chambers of Commerce and Industries. So um, it's assumed that th- this was the kind of nationalist faction, and then there was, uh, you know, the what, what we used to call the Comprador faction, or you know, the the collaborator faction, and, and the Tatas would be, you know, the Westernized, pro-British uh, side of things. And we have a lot of excellent research, to be fair, in the last um, 
30, 40 years that dispenses with this old dichotomy, but it still is very tempting to write uh, the history in this way because, and that's in part because there was a very clear and unambiguous distance between the Tatas and the political wing of the nationalist movement. We can see this in their, um, uh, you know, we can see this in particular moments in the 1930s, especially as Nehru was ascendant and there was, it was clear that some type of left-wing um you know, economic philosophy was being cultivated by the Congress. There are very clear moments where the Tatas express their um, their distance from the nationalist movement. This is different from so. This would be the distinction that I draw in the book between economic Swadeshi, which is to say, uh, a vision of national development and self sufficiency that is about what Jamshedji was doing, which is creating economic um, uh, institutions that he thought would be necessary for the modern nation, economic and philanthropic institutions that would be necessary for the modern nation, and then participating in the organized politics of the nationalist movement, especially as the nationalist movement turns towards uh, incorporating labor and the peasantry into uh, a broad mass-based coalition under Gandhi. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s. So there is a distance. Um, there's also, when it comes to the World War II, because you mentioned World War II, which is a very important turning point in the book, this is the moment where the Tatas continue their relationship with the colonial state. Um, in particular, they continue producing in Jamshedpur, uh, producing essential war uh, material, uh, for the colonial state. So there's a famous Tatanagar armored, uh, you know, uh, armored tank, you know, and all these other things. So th- th- this, they are, if to borrow a, a phrase from these days, they are an essential industry uh, for the war. And they are committed to the war effort as such. But around the time of the Quit India movement, which is when the nationalist leadership of the Congress decides to push against the British in the middle of World War II, there is a substantial disturbance and schism uh, in Jamshedpur between, even among the Tata workers, among uh, those who want to support the Congress in this call to to use World War II as an option, uh, as a moment to to fight the British and to finally be free of the British and those who advocate participating in the war effort to, for the cause of defeating, you know, global fascism, um, with the Japanese, of course, uh, on in at India's door in the summer and autumn of 1942. So um, this is the episode that I recount that is not often well known: the so-called Quit India Strike, which really divides uh, the population of Jamshedpur, the workers and the managers and the Tatas, also divided kind of among themselves and. What's it's not so important what happened in the strike. Not much really happened during the strike. But what is important is that we are moving towards an end game of empire, where this ambiguous position, uh, ambiguous time, ambivalent—you know—it's both of those things between the British Empire and the nationalist movement. The Tatas can no longer maintain that position in between, and they have to kind of start making some choices. And with the 1944 Bombay Plan, which is a document authored by the Tatas and several other leading uh, business houses, representatives of leading business houses in India, they appear to declare themselves committed to more centralized state planning and involvement in the economy. And they seem to appear to move towards uh, a rapprochement with the Congress. Uh, and after independence in the Nehru period, we again see the distance start to grow again, in particular as the five-year plans begin to encroach upon th- that sphere of essential infrastructure, essential industry that the Tatas have excelled in. So things, the, the nationalization of Air India in 1953, as well as um, there begin to be 
uh, applications for licenses and for expansion of existing industrial capacity in places like Jamshedpur that are turned down by the Nehru government. Nehru wants to build the state to be the sole entity that builds and operates steel plants. And so you start to see much more conflictual relationship again between the Tatas and the state. Um, but as I say, if you look at this across this set, more than a century of history, you'll see that this is a constantly dynamic and changing relationship of uh, proximity and distance. Uh, it's a cyclical relationship. So what I try to do is track it across these different regimes and across time. That was very interesting. Um, thank you. Uh, I learned a lot from reading this chapter because I had very little knowledge before um, about the relationship between the Tatas and, um, you know, uh, the the, uh, the colonial government and the nationalist movement and so on, and also the significance of World War II. I learned a lot um, uh, from reading that. Um, so sort of building on uh, what you mentioned about the strike, um, you also discuss how the Tata group navigated industrial relations um, and the conflict between capital and labor during the post-independence period. So could you tell us a little more about this? Yeah, so uh, one thing I should have mentioned in the earlier answer, which I want to touch upon now, is the importance, one thing the book really tries to do and stress, is the importance of a global political economic context, in particular the Cold War, to that struggle that I mentioned in that answer a bit with the state. And if the Nehruvian state draws resources and, in a sense, legitimacy and a freedom to maneuver, as the geographer Michael Kidron once argued, from the Soviet Union around the time of the Belay steel plant, uh, the Tatas build and deepen their connections with the United States and the World Bank uh, as resources to counter the strength and legitimacy of the Nehruvian state. So this is the 1950s in, in particular are an extremely tense time. And you can also see this in labor relations. There's the another, the last major strike at Tata Steel uh, takes place in 1958. And that's a, uh, a strike led by the Communist Party of, of India. Uh, and it gets framed and, and remembered as this kind of, you know, um, political strike engineered by outsiders. But if you look at the deeper causes and origins of it, there are also local factors that lead to this strike. In particular, uh, the Tatas are expanding production in this period. There's the 2 million ton program. Uh, they have an incredibly uh, uh, l- large workforce for a steel plant of their capacity. And that a lot of that comes from the kind of inflation of war production in the late 1940s. And like many uh, capitalists around the world, they, they try to retrench and downsize after uh, World War II. So on the one hand, they try to retrench and downsize the workforce. On the other hand, they have to essentially upgrade their technical training and managerial structure for expanded production. So this is the the root of them trying to reorganize the workforce along the lines of scientific management, and that is implementing mm-hmm. um, things like uh, you know uh, point systems and also shop floor uh, regulation and control derived from kind of Taylorist principles of management. And it is these frictions on the shop floor coupled with these larger technical managerial transformations uh, uh, that uh, as well as you put that together with a political dynamic of different unions representing different political parties in this Cold War context. You know, so the communists have unrecognized union versus the recognized union, which is a Congress union. And that you know, it all comes together in this uh, strike in 1958. And the ultimate legacy of this moment is that the Tatas are learning how to balance between using these imported ideas of scientific management and trying to adapt them to the local context. Uh, And there's this very longstanding and important dynamic between imported ideas of management and, you know, what we might call a more paternalist uh, 
vein of running the workforce that is perhaps dependent on the Tata's role as a kind of quasi-sovereign, in as a quasi-government in this region, which I mentioned in one of my earlier answers. So in moments like the 1958 strike, you really see all of these tensions uh, coming together. And one of the lessons that the Tatas derive from the strike is that, you know, perhaps, um, you know, uh, they've gone too far in certain directions uh, and they need to, to, to re, you know, to re establish uh, the proper mixture between these, what I call paternalism and technocracy uh, in this, uh, in this period. Thank you. Um, I was also going to um, ask you um, about uh, the Tata efforts towards um, cultivating managerial talent, um, but um, you mentioned it, I mentioned that already. So thank you for um, sharing that. Um, but sort of a follow up question related to that is um, sort of comparing um, the Tatas to other um, Indian family businesses or other business empires in this regard. Like, were the Tatas exceptional um, in sort of using these, um, you know, scientific methods of management or um, did did other uh, companies also um, employ uh, these methods? I think they did. I think they did so increasingly also in this period. But I do think that the Tatas were in a way in the lead of this process. And I think you can see this even going back to the chapter on pre- independence philanthropy through these through the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, for example, through their donations uh, to uh, the London School of Economics in 1912, which was initially a kind of poverty research program that was mainly directed at, at East London uh, and had nothing to do with India. But then they bring the experts from the LSE, the Webbs, and uh, all these other luminaries of Edwardian social science to Jamshedpur to try to help them provide amenities and welfare, what, what you mentioned also, and run the town. So there is, uh, it's very deep into the Tata DNA to, to do this. And they do this systematically and over the course of many years, which I think is, is uh, in advance of what other groups are doing. Although you do see this especially in terms of management, especially with um, in Ahmedabad, you have uh, um, post-independence, you have the Sarabais and other business families that really uh, lean into uh, a managerial training and education in a way that um, even perhaps surpasses the Tatas, but that is something that happens later. Uh, and just to mention the management training specifically, this is I mentioned that the Tata archives are located uh, on the campus of the Management Training Center, which was started in the 1950s in this period of uh, uncertainty and tension as a way to to reconstruct and reinforce the group identity. And John Matai, who was the finance minister and um, uh, leading Tata executive, was involved in starting the center. And he explicitly says that, you know, it's a time of transition. It's a time when the social role of business is uncertain, the social and political role of business in India is uncertain. And the managing agency system that had prevailed from the days of the colonial period is in decline. So we need something to remind us of who we are and what is Tata and what are the values and of the group and what are the ethics and standards and procedures and practices of the group. And that's really what TMTC, the Management Center, is all about. And I think it's important for you know listeners who've gotten this far into the podcast, I really want to stress that the notion of the identity of a business group, of any institution, but in particular of a business group, when we talk about Tata values, the Tata way of doing things, I think many people simply take this for granted. They just assume that it's always been there and every person in Tata follows some kind of imaginary script that they're, that they're born with. You know, like uh, like E.O. Wilson's ants. You know, they just they just know what to do as soon as they you know as soon as they enter the group. And this is uh, not how it works. How it works is that there are particular moments in history when identity, ethics, and values are constructed. And uh, when it comes to the Tata group, the mid to late 1950s is that defining moment. It's when the archives are assembled. It's when. Uh, 
these management training courses bring people from across the group together to create a kind of, again, a shared culture, a shared ethics and shared values and traditions. And this is really, this is the moment of the invention of tradition for the Tatas. So when people um, think of the Tatas, they often think of, you know, the Tata family, um, obviously because of the name. Um, But something else that you emphasize in the book um, is sort of the role of various individuals. Um, um, So, of course, um, you you mentioned some of the figures you mentioned who are probably not very well known um, include like Minu Masani or Rusi Modi um, and others. But there were there was also uh, you also discussed the role of Jay Prakash Narayan, J.P. Narayan, the famous Gandhian and socialist activist. um, And you discuss, you know, their connection or their role, um, you know, in sort of the history of the Tata organization. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about them, about some of these figures and sort of, uh, you know, sort of why you sort of felt the need to sort of include their stories or sort of their role um, in telling the history of the Tata group in the post-independence years? Absolutely. So some of those figures are external to the group and some are internal to the group and some are in between. So Masani is somebody who is both within the group. He serves in numerous capacities from the 40s to the 50s uh, in the group, including uh, as the head of public relations and as the head of labor relations, somebody who's in charge of actually implementing a lot of the bargains with unions and the, and the management training and scientific management. That's all Masani. And I think without attention to those people, shall we say, in the second rank behind, you know, below the chairman, J.R.D. Tata, or even some of the famous people uh, like Matai or like Edi Shroff or the company leaders who are well known, uh, even somebody like Rusi Modi, who later becomes uh, the, uh, who later goes on to lead Tata Steel. um, It's important to look at the second or even third layers of management, people who actually bring the group together and and make things happen and facilitate the flow of ideas, the flow and adaptation of ideas. So Masani plays that role, but Masani is also an external political actor. He goes uh, and gets himself elected to the Lok Sabha, the parliament in 1957, and is somebody who is experiencing in a Cold War context a, a rather familiar tale of conversion away, political conversion away from uh from socialism to uh, essentially to the to the right um, and to what he would co- to what he uh, embraces the politics of uh, free enterprise, uh, which um, my friend and colleague Aditya Balasubramanian is is uh, working on now the Swatantra Party uh, and so on. So Masani is connecting all sorts of different spheres. He's connecting the old Congress socialists, including his friend. Jay Prakash Narayan, who kind of follows him down this path of conversion from socialism to Gandhism, so from sort of left to right, uh, and uh, connecting the new forces, the new anti-Nehru forces on the political right with uh, the business community. So it is this triangulation, this is what I call an alliance of convenience that uh, is taking place between the Tatas and these Gandhian socialists slash social democrats slash ex-socialists uh, led by Narayan and uh, in, in around their efforts to create a new image of business as socially responsible and thus worthy of legitimacy in the Nehruvian period uh, as an alternate locus of um, to the state, that is, of really institutions that people can put their faith in and their trust in, you know. Uh, And also, this is a process of distinguishing between the Tatas and perhaps the smaller traders and manufacturers who are condemned as these profiteering and black marketeers. They they give business a bad name. So uh, Tata works with the Gandhians and works with 
And all this is facilitated by Masani to create a new image of business that will enhance its social and political standing. But this is, as I show, this is the final chapter of the book we're talking about now, but this is uh, a relationship that is an alliance of convenience that is quite tense. And so Masani has to constantly massage it and constantly keep it alive. Uh, and the, eventually, in the late 1970s, it breaks down. Thank you. Um, This entanglement of the Tatas with politics is really quite fascinating because I I knew of Minu Masani before as like a Satantra party leader. I did not know that he was so closely connected uh, with the Tatas. And another figure you mentioned earlier, John Mathai, um, I did did not know that he was also connected with the um, Tata group. And if I'm remembering correctly, there was also, I, I don't remember the name of this Tata family member, but one of the Tata family members, I think you mentioned, um, fought in a Lok Sabha election. Yes, that was Naval Tata, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Thank you. Um, So the narrative of your book um, ends with um, Indira Gandhi's declaration of the emergency um, in the late 1970s, uh, which you note as a watershed in the history of businesses in India more generally and of the Tatas in particular. Um, So how did the Tatas change um, from these early post-independence decades, that's where 1950s through the 1970s to, um, you know, the advent of neoliberalism over the last 30 or 40 years in the 1980s or 1990s? So first I'll say that um, many readers who pick up the book expect to find a complete history of the Tatas that spans the origins to the present moment. And some are disappointed that the book ends in the late 1970s. And one of the reasons why I do that is because of the lack of archival material past that period into the 80s. So we simply don't have the kind of meticulous documentation that we do for the earlier period. So, of course, one can then resort to interviews and just using newspaper articles and and these kinds of things, but I didn't really want to do that. There's been a lot of excellent uh, journalistic uh, accounts of the Tatas uh, in the past 30, 40 years, which, which people can read and supplement to my book. But there's also an intellectual reason to end in the 70s, and that's because the emergency really... I would argue, marks a significant break with the past in terms of that ambivalent relationship with the state. I think that with uh, Indira Gandhi, who essentially moves, as many scholars have shown, uh, Indira Gandhi's post-emergency shift towards embracing the private sector, which actually has its origins even in the early 70s and in the productivity uh, crisis. So the early 70s were a time of significant economic disruption. You have the global oil shocks, you have uh, a significant drop in uh, productivity and growth in the Indian economy. So this is the moment where where Indira Gandhi already, this, this is supposedly, you know, uh, Mrs. Gandhi's leftist phase, right, where she was allied with the Communist Party and, and all these things. But it is at this time that she begins to reach out to the business community and the business community reaches out to her through the so-called Tata Memorandum of 1972. Um, and this, uh, this, Again, this drawing closer to the state uh, really is cemented by the emergency and the support that the Tatas and other leading businessmen give to the emergency as a way to crack down on labor and uh, to realize some development goals that they feel have not been realized from, from the days of the Bombay plan onwards. So this idea of a state business alliance uh, for economic growth, in the words of Atul Kohli, this is really what is happening during the emergency, and that leads very um, quickly thereafter into uh, neoliberalism, that is to say, into a loosening, into market reforms and a loosening of regulations. So there's also the Janata episode. So after Mrs. Gandhi is kicked out in 1977, the opposition comes to power, and they actually then pose a significant threat to the Tatas. They try to nationalize Tata Steel, Tisco, uh, and they they don't, they fail to do so. But a lot of things end in this period. So the threat to the Tatas from the state, the threat of nationalization, the threat of regulation ends. The attempts by business to present itself as socially responsible in, in 
defense, trying to defend themselves from those threats, uh, also ends in this period, along with all the intellectual connections and networks that they have um, achieved. And also that there are other things that end the paternalist mode, you know, of governance, so that that kind of paternalism technocracy uh, dynamic also shifts significantly after the emergency. There's a lot of downsizing. There's a lot of subcontracting that happens. It makes Tata Steel not so different from many other uh, steel plants in the world. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the processes and dynamics and transitions that I track throughout the book really find their natural endpoint in the late 1970s. So we now live in a different world from then, but a world that was made uh, by that moment. And I think that's something that a lot of historians of capitalism writing on different parts of the world have come to that same conclusion, that we live in a world that is shaped by the events of the mid to late 1970s, and particularly the economic crisis that uh, uh, that spanned that decade uh, f- from the early to the late uh, 70s. And now we are, of course, in another moment where a significant crisis is restructuring our global political and economic life. Um, but I think when it comes to India and when it comes to the Tatas, uh, that was uh, a, g- a good place to end. And I leave it to readers to draw the parallels between what is going on now and what was going on then. Thank you. Um, so um, maybe, maybe just sort of building um, on what you just said here, um, the Tata Group remain very much in the spotlight today. Um, so th- there were uh, the recent um, leadership conflicts between Ratan Tata and Cyrus Mystery, which have tarnished uh, the reputation of the group. But despite that, um, the Tatas remain India's largest business conglomerate and one of the most recognizable brands of Indian capitalism. Um, and anecdotally speaking, um, as I mentioned before, the Tatas remain very popular among the middle and upper middle classes of India. Um, so since the publication of your book, something that's happened is that the Tatas have acquired the beleaguered um, Indian national airline, Air India. Um, and um, anecdotally speaking, many people I've interacted with, um, you know, fellow passengers on Air India, for example, um, they greatly approve the Tatas taking over this airline that they once founded. Um, so could you share with us any final thoughts about what the Tatas tell us about contemporary Indian capitalism? Um, um, and yeah, how, how do you see the present and future of the Tatas in a post-financial crisis and post-COVID world? So the succession conflicts between Ratan Tata and the former chairman and Cyrus Mistry, his successor, from 2012 to 2016 when Mistry was ousted, what I argue in the epilogue of my book is that these essentially are a replay of conflicts that we've seen before when it comes to the Tatas, in particular in the early 20th century, when there was substantial debate and division within the the group, uh, within the family, the brothers and the cousin, over uh, whether or not the group should be more outward-oriented and globally focused versus national uh, domestic market. Uh, And so I think we see... uh, behind you know all the drama and all the personalities involved i think we we also see so we see the conflict between a global orientation and the national orientation i think covid has led to a significant contraction of globalization although that was already in the cards uh, throughout the 2010s and so we see that the tatas made these major investments and acquisitions in the late 2000s, Jaguar, Land Rover, Chorus, uh, some of which worked out better than others. Um, But after the financial crisis, there was certainly this idea that you would need to retrench or streamline your business operations. And that really was the root of the conflict between Mystery and Ratan. Um, With that conflict behind the Tatas, um, with the new chairman now, uh, who seems to be very well respected and and seems to be uh, steadying the ship and putting it back on track, um, that we do have this, this acquisition of Air India. And I think it really speaks to something that I found in my research and something that I think readers will find if they look at the book, is this is a group that is highly conscious of its own history. This is a group 
who lives in the past, sometimes or with the past all the time. And so I think this is very clearly an attempt to recapture their past glory that and to heal a wound, the nationalization of Air India in 1953, uh, which was Tata's innovation that was taken away by the government. Um, I think there are, and there's no doubt that Tata's reputation for competence, for managerial competence, will be welcome uh, for Air India, which is an airline that has uh, fallen on quite hard times over the past uh, uh, couple of decades. But at the same time, I would say that there's a warning here, which is to say that um, the Tatas also, to survive and thrive into the 21st century, I think, need to recapture some of that spirit of innovation and forward thinking that they had under Jamshechi and the early J.R.D. Tata uh, in the first half of the 20th century. And Many will wonder if buying an airline, uh, a very indebted airline, is uh, is part of that spirit of uh, forward looking to the 21st century's needs uh, in terms of technology and infrastructure and what a, a large, well-resourced and well-run group such as the Tatas can provide. So as a historian, I can't speak to the future and I can't speak to business strategy either. But what I can say is that if we look at Tata history, the things that have made it are those big entrepreneurial, forward-thinking and risky ventures of the early 20th century. And there's always a tension between how much further risk, this is a classic tension in all of business, but how much forward you look, how much do you innovate and plan and try to anticipate the future and how much do you consolidate and uh, try to do core competency and do the things that you do well. Uh, and I think that this is, I have no doubt that, that the Tatas can run a very good airline, but uh, is this what India and the world needs in the 21st century is a different question, but that is precisely the question that Jamshedji Tata once asked himself. Thank you so much uh, once again, Mircha, for taking so much time out of your busy schedule um, to talk with me today. Um, So before we end, could you tell us what you're working on right now? Yes. So right now I'm continuing to do some of the Uh, to do some smaller research projects that are connected to my Tata research, since I have so much wonderful material from the archives to work with. Um, There are projects on the intellectual history of uh, interwar India, where um, political economists like Benoit Kumar Sarkar, who you mentioned earlier, who talked about Tataism as an analog to Fordism. So how they wrote about the corporation in India. Uh, I also have a few smaller projects on Jamshedpur uh, that I continue to work on. And also looking ahead, my next book project takes off from the final chapter of the book when discussing social responsibility and the ways in which different alliances and networks of thinkers around the world tried to reimagine the corporation uh, and how it is organized and what it does. Uh, And some of those uh, efforts have lessons for us today as we look to the future. Thank you. Those all sound like a very interesting and promising uh, projects. Um, so I look forward to following up with them and reading them in the future. Um, and perhaps we can have you um, on the New Books Network podcast uh, again for your um, next book. Um, so this was an interview with Professor Mircha Rayanu about his book, um, Tata, the Global Corporation uh, that Built Indian Capitalism. Um, so I hope you have a good day. Um, so thank you, Mircha. Thank you.